Amen. That was rich. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Titus chapter 1. We began a new sermon series on Titus last week. Titus is in the New Testament. Uh, there are five books in a row that all begin with the letter T. You got First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, then Titus. If you get to Philemon or Hebrews or James, you've gone too far. We're in Titus chapter 1. And we said last week that this book of Titus is so applicable to where we are right now. I encourage you to read it. It's just one page in my Bible. I hope you've taken some time to read it or to listen to it read. Uh, I would encourage you to continue to do that as we study this book. We do come to the section this week uh, where we learn of the qualifications for officers in the church. And we said that is very timely for us as a church because two weeks from today... On May the 23rd, we will have a congregational meeting right after our morning worship service where we will elect new officers. And here we find the qualifications for those officers. So this is very timely and applicable for us as a church. We'll also be sharing some important information with you during this time, so I hope you'll make plans to attend that service. And really, the qualifications and knowing that the congregational meeting was coming up was one of the reasons why we picked the book of Titus to go through as a church together. But as I was studying this week, I saw a much broader application, something that would apply not just to our particular church, but really the culture that we live in today. And so I'm so excited to talk to you about this rest of chapter 1 of Titus. Because in our day, there is a lot of talk right now about what we call misinformation or disinformation. You hear folks talk about conspiracy theories or fake news or lies intended to mislead or to manipulate people. We're concerned about it. What do we do? Do we kick people off social media? How are we going to handle it? How do we find what is true? How do we have sources? Do we start new media sources? We're talking about this idea of misinformation in our culture today. Well, did you know that the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to Titus, he's writing to Titus, whom he left on the island of Crete. And Titus is on that island, and you'll see in verse 5, he says, hey, I left you there to straighten out what had gone wrong. And what you want to know what was going wrong on Crete back in the first century? There were people who were spreading misinformation. There were lies intended to mislead and to manipulate people. There were folks who, had, who were full of empty talk, deceiving people, ruining whole households, teaching what they ought not to teach for dishonest gain. And so Paul is writing into that environment. I was like, wow, that sounds a lot like where we live, being concerned about misinformation and disinformation. So what does Paul say that the answer is to that? How are we in the church to respond to misinformation or disinformation in a culture? How do we respond to people being led astray, being caught up in the spirit of the age, disregarding what God says in his word? How does the church respond? What is the answer to that dilemma? It may surprise you. Verse 5, Paul says... I left you on Crete to straighten out what went wrong, and I want you to appoint elders. That's job number one. 
really, Paul? That's your answer? <laughs> appoint elders in every town. He's saying, look, I want you to plant churches. I want you to appoint leaders in those churches. And I want them to oversee these churches, these groups of people who are gathering together in the name of the Lord. And then the elders are to teach. And it doesn't stop there. In chapter 2, it says, hey, the older men are supposed to teach the younger men. Titus 2 and verse 3, you got to go there on Mother's Day, right? That the older women are to pour into the younger women. God's answer to this issue of misinformation and disinformation is this. It is Bible teaching churches that are overseen by elders and shepherds. That's the answer. That's the answer that he gives. And I'm so excited to show that to you today. That is his answer. But the first thing I want you to see is that God's plan is for a church to be overseen by a team of elders, by a team of overseers. Look with me at Titus 1 and verse 5. Paul writes to Titus, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, plural, in every town as I directed you. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you. He's just appointing some elders. But it shows us that God's plan for a church is that it would be overseen by a team of elders, by a team of overseers. He'll use that word later. This word elders in the Greek is just presbyteros. Right? That's where we get the word Presbyterian. Presbyterian just means governed by elders. That's what it means. And he uses this term overseers interchangeably. It's the same group of people, these elders and overseers, sometimes translated bishops. The word in the Greek is episkopos, where we get the word episcopal. But Bishops and elders are the same thing. They're both overseers. They're both people who are appointed. There's supposed to be more than one of them. You see, it is not a biblical pattern of church government to have one guy at the top who calls all the shots. That's not the biblical plan. That's not what we see as the pattern in the scripture. You could read in Acts chapter 11 and verse 30. And within 15 years of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a plurality of elders in the church in Jerusalem. It's a group effort. They're ruling and overseeing that church together. If you keep reading in Acts, by the time you get to Acts 14 and verse 23, we see where Paul and Barnabas go on these missionary journeys. And we see the spread of the gospel. And what they do is they appoint elders, plural, in every church. That's the way they start. To just, that's how they know it's ready for Paul to move on someplace else. When there are leaders who have been appointed to oversee and to pastor the people in that place. But there's more than one. The idea is it's a plurality. There's a group of leaders. That's why here at Redeemer Church, I have one of five votes. That's, that's news to some people. They think that I get everything that I want here. <laughs> you don't get everything you probably want. I don't get everything I want either, right? I talk to young men sometimes who are going into the ministry, and they say, when I get my church... We're going to, and then they fill in the blank, sing psalms exclusively. We're going to have communion every week. 
We know Calvin in Geneva wanted communion every week the whole time he was there and never did get it. Because there were a plurality of elders. There wasn't one person calling all the shots. And that's what the biblical plan for a church is. So God's plan is for a church to be overseen by a team or a group of elders or overseers. Now, so if that's what Titus is supposed to do, there's this misinformation, false information, this false teaching ruining households, leading people astray, people saying things that are not true for dishonest gain, could have been written yesterday, right? So he's supposed to appoint elders. Well, what kind of people is he looking for? What are the types of people that would serve in this role? And that's what Paul talks about next. He says, hey, here are the kind of guys that you should be looking for. And he uses a term here twice. He says that elders should be above reproach. He says it twice. In fact, your translation may say that they're to be blameless. Look at verses, uh, where am I, 6 and 7 there. He says, if anyone is above reproach, and then he goes on and gives some qualifications. And then again in verse 7, he says, for an overseer, he's using the terms interchangeably, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must be blameless. Now I look at that and say, man, I'm not blameless. The specific word used there is not a word that means flawless or perfect, because if that were the case, no one would ever qualify to be an elder. My daughters are sitting there like, you're right. That's humbling. It's good to have my girls, all three, in the service today. Keep me straight. Thank you. I appreciate you girls. But what this word means is it means that there's no accusation against these men, and in this case, of unbiblical living. That there's no accusation against them for living in a way that's not biblical. You know, the office of an elder is a public office. And so the public reputation of those who serve in that office is important, and it's a part of their qualifications for the job. They must be above reproach. They haven't been accused of any type of unbiblical living. And here at Redeemer Church, that's why we announce, people are like, why don't we just go ahead and have elections? But we announce them 30 days in advance so that you know who the people are who are standing for election our current session has examined those men, but if you know something about them, we don't know. We need to know. And so we announced at least 30 days ahead of time who will stand for an election so that you can challenge their qualifications if there is some sort of accusation of unbiblical living that needs to be made against them. Because elders are to be above reproach. Now, Paul gets a little more specific. He doesn't just say there's no kind of accusation against him. There are really, as I look at these qualifications, three areas where an elder or an overseer should be above reproach. And so if you're thinking about who are these people, Paul seems to say, here's three areas you should be sure and look at. I hear Paul saying, he says, tell me how he handles his family, number one. I hear Paul saying, tell me how he handles himself, number two. And then number three, I hear Paul saying, tell me how he handles the word. 
Let's look at those three things together under those headings. First, in what areas is he supposed to be above reproach? First, how does he, man, how does he handle his family? Look in verse 6 of the text. Paul writes, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. That's a mouthful right there. Basically, what Paul is saying is that leading the church is like leading a large family. Different kinds of people involved. It's like being a part. It is like being a member of a family. And so Paul says one of the qualifications is if a person leads his family well, then that's a qualification for leading well in the family of God because it's very similar. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5 where Paul is giving qualifications to Timothy in Ephesus. He says if a man does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? It's a good question. It's a good litmus test. Because being an officer in the church is very much like being the head of a household, of being the head of a family. And then Paul gets specific about that. He, he gives some things, hey, here are the kinds of things you want to be looking for. I don't think this is an exclusive list. I, sometimes I think we press these things for more meaning than what we should. Because I think what Paul is saying is, tell me how he manages his family. Because that's an indication of how he will manage affairs in the church. And then he gives some, here are the types of things you should be looking for. For instance, in verse 6, the first thing he says is, the husband of one wife. Literally, the text says, a one-woman man. I wish we had a lot more time for some in-depth exegesis, because there's a lot going on right here. But let me just give you a few things, and if you want more, I, I've, I've actually studied, written extensively on this. I'd be glad to send you what I've got. But literally, he says, a one-woman man. And the reason I think it's important to point that out is I don't think that the exclusion here is to exclude people who have never been married or are single. I don't think it's Paul's intention to make the qualifications of an elder on a church in Crete so high that the Lord Jesus wouldn't meet the standard. He's not married. The Apostle Paul was not married. From all indications, Titus, who he's writing to, is not married. So I don't think the exclusion is for people who've never been married or, or widowers who have remarried, they've had more than one wife, or those who have remarried after a biblical divorce. The prohibition seems to be excluding polygamists. You can't have more than one wife. You're a one-woman man. But that wasn't really an issue on the island of Crete. I don't think polygamy is really what he's writing about. I'll tell you what was rampant in Crete unfaithfulness to your spouse it was not unusual at all for a head of household to have his wife with whom he had children but then to have another mistress or mistresses on the side and what Paul is saying is the kind of person you are looking for is someone who is faithful Someone who has a track record of being faithful to their spouse. That's the kind of person that you're looking for. I believe he's saying that if a man is unfaithful to his bride, he's not qualified to serve as a faithful servant of the bride of Christ. He's saying look for faithfulness. Then he talks about children. 
He says his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. What's he saying here? here bottom line, here's what I think he's saying. And again, I would love to get in the line by line with you. It's my temptation to get down there. But I think basically what he's saying is this. These men you're looking for have a relationship with God that is really good. They have a good relationship with God. And they have a good relationship with their children. And their relationship with God is so good and their relationship with their children is so good that their children want to have that relationship that they see their dad having with God. That's what I think he's saying. You're looking for that kind of of a man you're looking for that kind of an officer that people who are close to him want to have this relationship with God that he's got and that's something you can look for whether a man has children or not are there people who are close to him and around him who want to have who ask him about the hope that's inside of him as first Peter says who, who want to have the kind of relationship with God that he has so I don't think this is saying you have to have children I think that's the principle that he's writing about a few things in the line by line because i just can't help it the words here are that his children the greek word is techna it's really a word that that typically applies to young kids to dependent children to minors to to kids that are still under the parents authority this is not talking about grown children we don't hold a man accountable for his adult independent kids after they're outside of the home like we would hold him accountable for the relationship that he has with his kids while they're still under his roof. And I get that from that term techna. It's young kids. It's dependent kids. Also notice that the word is plural, his children. It doesn't mean you have to have more than one child to be an elder. It means that you're not just looking at the actions of one kid, but you're looking at the character of the family as a whole. Or you're looking at his character as he interacts with all the people that are close to him. It's not like he's qualified if he has a great relationship with his kids, but an awful relationship with other people that he's close to. But it's not a focus on one child. It's the character of the family or the people around him as a whole. And when it says they should believe, we tend to think of that as a one-time, I've made a decision, snapshot kind of thing. The word here is pistis. It can be translated faithfulness. It's not really looking at a snapshot. It's looking at the whole movie. And so it calls for an assessment of the kid's character and conduct over time. It doesn't mean that a man's disqualified for office because one time his kid did foolish, immature kid stuff. It means that over time it calls for an assessment of their faithfulness to God. And then he says they're not subject to this charge of debauchery or insubordination. We don't really talk like that much. The NIV that I typically use says wild and disobedient. I've heard y'all call half the kids in this church wild and disobedient. If you served in kids club, I know you thought it if you hadn't said it. But it's not talking about having a lot of energy. It's not talking about being loud like kids are sometimes. I'm in the ESV this morning. It talks about debauchery and insubordination. What do those words mean? Debauchery means wicked, really bad, right? Excessive immorality, excessive indulgence in immorality. Insubordination 
means that they refuse any type of restraint whatsoever. And so the standard here, as 1 Timothy 3 and verse 5 says, does the man manage his family well? It doesn't mean you're looking for someone who's never had any issues in his family. Because let me promise you, if he becomes an officer, he's going to have some issues in this family of the whole church. So I hope he's got some experience dealing with some issues in his family. The issue is not, just has he ever had issues in his family? The issue is, how did he manage the issues in his family? And if he manages his family well, that's a qualification. Paul says, tell me how he handles his family. Secondly, I think Paul very clearly says, tell me how he manages himself. What is his character? What is his conduct like? And then Paul lists about 11 different terms. It's 11 in the Greek. You might have slightly more or less in the English. 11 terms. Uh, Six of them are positive. Five of them are negative. Listen to how he describes how a man should handle himself, his character, his conduct, verses 7 and 8. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Paul did that thing again that we just saw him do a minute ago. How many ago he said above reproach, above reproach, blameless, blameless. He repeats himself again. When he talks about being self-controlled and disciplined, because that seems to be the main idea of these things. Paul is saying, you want to know the kind of officer you're looking for? Tell me how the person, how he manages himself. Is he self-controlled? Is he disciplined? Is he a master of himself? It's the same word that Paul uses in Galatians 5.22 when he's listing the fruit of the Spirit. And that last one is self-control. And by mentioning that ninth and final fruit, singular, of the Spirit, he's probably including that whole list in what you should be looking for as an elder. What he's really saying is that the fruit of the Spirit should be such a part of the life of an elder, that his life, in his life as you look at him, there should be visible evidence that the man has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit is producing fruit in his life. Not that he's great, that he's producing, that he's got a good resume, that the Holy Spirit is, that he's so dependent on the Spirit to grow these things in him. We sang it a minute ago, what? Holiness is Christ in me, that I'm decreasing so that Christ might increase and that I'm more and more controlled by his Spirit and not controlled by other things. That's the kind of person you're looking for. And then as he lists these different characteristics, he's asking questions. When he says, don't, he shouldn't be arrogant. The question he's asking is, tell me how he manages his pride. Is he controlled by his pride or is he controlled by the Spirit of God? After arrogant, what does he say? He shouldn't be quick-tempered. And Paul is saying, how does he manage his anger? Is he controlled by his anger or is he controlled by the Spirit of God? He says he shouldn't be a drunkard. Well, that one's easy, right? Ephesians 5, don't be filled with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. How does he manage himself in regard to alcohol, in regard to food, in regard to indulgence? 
He says he shouldn't be violent. Paul's saying, how does the man handle power? When he has the upper hand, how does he handle that? Is he overbearing? Or does he look like this book we're going to read this summer, gentle and lowly, the way the Lord Jesus led his flock? What's the next one? That he would not be greedy for gain. Paul's saying, tell me how he handles his money. Is he more controlled by the spirit or is he more controlled by his money? Paul's saying if he cannot manage himself, how can he manage the household of God? There's one character I want to pull out and say something special about. Do you see where it says he must be hospitable? You know what that means? It means hospitality. You know, on, on Mother's Day, we usually talk about Proverbs 31, and we think women should have this gift of hospitality. And I think it's great when God gives that gift, and I'm thankful for it. But listen to what this is saying. That to be a leader in the church, you have to have this gift of hospitality. That you have to open up your home and your life to people so that they can be involved and see. Just like your kids see this relationship you have with God and therefore want it. That you've got to open up that way with other people. We don't talk about this. That hospitality is a requirement for leaders in God's church. Oh, that God would raise up more folks who are hospitable. More men who would welcome people into their lives and into their homes. I think of Rosaria Butterfield. Some of you have read her books. The first one, uh, The Confessions of an Unlikely Convert. She tells the story of how she was a very liberal, feminist, lesbian, English professor. Hated Christianity. Started interviewing a Presbyterian pastor and his wife who welcomed her into their home. And just week after week had this conversation. She's basically interviewing them for a book. You know, why are Christians so messed up? You know, why do y'all fight so much in the church? Why are you so exclusive? And they just showed hospitality and welcomed her. And she wrote about how week after week, slowly her defenses were chipped away until she longed to be part of the family of God because she saw the kind of relationship these people have with God and she wanted that. She writes about it more in her, her, her next book, remember? The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She writes about how hospitality is so essential for Christians reaching out to a post-Christian culture. Oh, that God would raise up more men who are hospitable. May he send them to this place. Paul says, tell me how he handles his family. Tell me how he handles himself. Third of all, tell me how he handles the word. Look at verse 9. Paul says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Can, can we just be honest for a minute? <laughs> the third thing he lists is usually what we put first, Right? We want somebody who can teach and somebody who knows the word. <laughs> Paul's saying if their family's a wreck and they're mean, you don't want them, even if they know the word and can teach. He puts this third, it's important because God's people need to be encouraged because people who are wrong need to be rebuked. 
But there's a very certain kind of person that he's, he's describing here. He says, yes, he should hold firmly to what? To the trustworthy word. This word trustworthy is important. In the pastoral epistles, Paul's always writing to Timothy, who's a young apprentice in Ephesus, and to Titus, who's a young apprentice on the island of Crete, and he'll write something, and he'll say, hey, this is a trustworthy word. He, he means something specific by this. No doubt Titus would have heard him say, he's supposed to, uh, you're looking for somebody who's holding firm to the trustworthy word, and we think word of God, and that's true. But what does Paul mean when he says trustworthy to Titus? We'll look in Titus chapter 3 and verse 8. This is one of those places where Paul says, this is a trustworthy saying. Well, what is? We'll look above that. Titus 3, beginning in verse 3. This is the trustworthy saying. That we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hating one another, and being hated by others and hating one another. He's saying hold firmly to this truth that we're all sinners, that we've all fallen short. That we're going to be gracious with other people who fall short because we've been there ourselves. That you're looking for people who hold firmly to that. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared. <laughs> if you are an officer in the church and you're representing the Lord Jesus Christ, you're looking for people with that goodness and that kindness towards people who are foolish and disobedient. You're looking for men who hold firmly to that. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. You're looking for men who hold firmly to the mercy of God. And not the things that we think we can accomplish in our righteousness. But the things that God does in and through us by His mercy. You're looking for those who hold firmly to that. He goes on that we're, it happens according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about being controlled by the Spirit. Verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace. <laughs> You're looking for people who hold firmly to justification by the grace of God alone, that we're declared not guilty, not because of anything good in us, but because of the finished work of Christ on the cross applied to us by the Holy Spirit. You're looking for men who hold firmly to this idea. Verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. Paul's saying, look for men that hold firmly to that. He says, that hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught. Your translation may say, as it has been taught. He's talking about the apostolic teaching, Acts 2.42. The Holy Spirit comes and they devote themselves to apostolic teaching and to fellowship. <laughs> Koinonia, hospitality. What it looks like when the Holy Spirit comes, those are the kind of leaders that you are looking for. Why is he supposed to be able to do this? Not just to hold firmly, to be able to teach, to be apt to teach, to be able to convey these truths to other people. Why is that the kind of person you're looking for? Because the job is to encourage people with God's word and to rebuke those. That means to correct those 
who are not doing things according to God's word. Well, why is it important that the elder and overseer is able to encourage and correct? Verse 10, for, what's the for there for? Because he's linking it back to what went before, right? He should be, he should hold tightly the trust of the word as taught so that he can give instruction, sound doctrine, contradict those who, or rebuke those who contradict it. Verse 10, for, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. That's what we started with because of all that misinformation out there. Because people are following the spirit of the age instead of the word of God. You need to appoint people who look like this. So interesting to me. He says those, there are many who are insubordinate. They are what his children should not be, right? That they're without any restraint. He's repeated that word insubordinate. They're empty talkers. These are people who just talk the talk. They're not producing fruit and keeping with repentance in their lives like these leaders that that Paul says we're looking for. They're deceivers. They lead people away from what is true. And Paul in particular here in the rest of this chapter condemns the teaching of the circumcision group and Jewish myths. But what is it in particular that Paul is concerned about? Because we need to be looking for it as well. And I think he zeroes in and nails it in verse 14. What does he say in verse 14? It's not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Paul is concerned about those who would be drawn to the commands of people instead of the word of God. He's concerned about those who would teach what is of human origin, the commands of people. His concern is that they follow the spirit of the age and reject the truth of God, that they would turn from divine revelation and instead embrace human ideas and opinions. Again, could have been written in the newspaper today. People who don't want any kind of restraint, people who reject God and his word, Although, verse 16, they profess to know God. Do you see that in verse 16? They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They do things that are inconsistent with God's word because they don't want any restraint on their lives. They're dismissive of God's word. They don't recognize the authority of God's word, and they don't put themselves under God's word. Listen, I know you want to get to lunch with mom, so let me just land this plane. Let me finish up. We're really concerned in our day about misinformation, about people being led astray, about the direction, the country, and the culture, and our community. Those are all valid concerns. But we get so alarmed at falsehood in our world as if this is something new that just happened when the internet came. (laughs) Do you see what... Paul, in every one of his letters, addresses false teaching, and he's writing 2,000 years ago. And much of it is false teaching within the church. Yet somehow, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has survived for 2,000 years. Listen, people of God. Jesus is building his church in the gates of hell and the gates of misinformation and conspiracy theory and fake news will stand against it. It's gonna, we're going to survive. 
But the way the church survives is to appoint leaders that look like this. The answer is not to abandon the church because we don't like the way that it looks. The answer is not to abandon the culture because it's so harsh out there. And it is harsh. His answer is not to give in to false teaching or the spirit of the age. His answer is not to remain silent and just let it go. His answer is to rebuke, to correct those who contradict God's word. So the takeaway for you today is this. When falsehoods are increasing... When there's so much misinformation out there, pray that God multiplies the number of those who teach the truth. Look for these kinds of people and appoint them to be leaders in churches. Plant churches that teach the Bible, that hold the word in high regard. And listen, this is not just for elders. It starts with them. But keep going. What does the chapter division say? Chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. You, Titus, you teach. But then verse 2, teach the older men to teach these things to the younger men. Verse 3, teach the older women in the church to teach these things to the younger women. That that's what his answer is. That's what his plan is. That there would be... Bible-believing churches who are passing on the truths of the faith, opening up our lives to one another, learning how to lean into this world together in a way that's consistent with God's Word. Last application. Here's what I'm really saying. What's he really saying? What does he want to really say? Here's what he really wants to say. I'm saying this. Do not complain to me about the world going to hell in a handbasket. I don't want to hear that. Unless you're also telling me who you got pouring into you, who's a further along that's pouring into you, and then who is a little further behind that you're pouring into. Because that's being part of the solution instead of just complaining about the problem. That's God's plan for his church. That we would all be finding someone who's further down the road who's pouring into us. And that we would be pouring into someone else who's not as far along. That we would open up our lives to one another. Led by men who exemplify those things. Amongst a group of people who more and more value those things. And more and more are becoming those things. So that we might be salt and light and truth. To a world that is just dark and lost. May God do that in this place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is hard to find people like you describe, Father, in your word. I just pray that you would raise up people like that in this place. That you would make us a people who value these things and that, that by your spirit you would come and, and raise up people that are like this. That you would move people here from other places that look like this. That you would draw people to this place that look like this. That we might be a church after your own heart, not despairing about the culture, but influencing the culture, being used of you, that your kingdom might come on earth, even as it is in heaven. Please come and do this in and through us, for it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.